0: The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Hmm. Well, good morning, everyone. So, we're coming to the conclusion of our introductory retreat. We've been studying the Eightfold Path, the Eight Gates, some of these really essential practices and teachings that have come down to us, all to bring us to today. Life has um, seems to have unavoidable disappointments, The satisfactions, there are so many things we can't control. There are the joys and pains of having this human body. There's the loving and difficult relationships we have in our lives. There is confusion and bewilderment, and much joy and beauty. All of it is impermanent, the Buddha taught. If we look carefully, That's very clear. Within that life is a wonder. It is fragile. It is fleeting. And we experience that very personally within this body and mind. As we flow out and the world flows in. And all of that is taking place within our particular time and place. Our people, our culture, our country, our world, our racism, our sexism, the many forms of bias, transphobia, homophobia, our wealth inequality, our climate, crying crisis. How in the midst of all of this are we to live a joyful life, compassionate life? How are we to be generous when we are suffering, while suffering, when others are suffering, when others are causing us suffering. The Buddha said we have to understand causation. We need to make a study of cause and effect. We need to understand how things, how actions are brought into being through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. What do those actions arise from? What forces within us? What emotions? What histories? What habits? what beliefs and views, what are the consequences of those actions? We should, ma- we should care. We should want to know. Because that's showing us what our influence on the world is. And for a bodhisattva, that's everything. Because our influence is going inward and outwardly at the same time. It is self and other. They can't be divided. What are our deeply established mental, physical, emotional habits, beliefs that lead to our perceptions, that lead to our responses and reactions. When we begin to look, we see that we all possess a mind that projects, that creates an ongoing overlay onto a direct, clean experience. We see that the mind appropriates takes possession of things and turns them into I and me and mine. And along with that, appropriation is the other side of that, not me, not I, not mine. And so the wall is built. We see the mind that proliferates, a maze of ideas and beliefs and concepts that generally we take as truth, accurate, worthy of listening to and following. This is all that the Buddha, this is what the Buddha was pointing to when he said we need to understand causation and how it's inseparable from mind, from our intentions, one of the most powerful forces in the human world, the desire to, which is the root of all karmic actions, and how within samsara it can be like weaving a cocoon around us without knowing. And that we can take that constriction and that lack of light and air and space as normal. It's just the way things are. Get used to it. (laughs) And we do. See, that's the thing. We get very used to it. We adapt. It's part of our amazing ability as human beings to adapt. And it's also part of our burden in the sense that it's, it's how we construct that cocoon and get used to it or we just resign ourselves until we don't. We just keep accepting what we shouldn't accept until we don't. We keep perpetuating those cycles that are not helpful until we don't. And that moment, or those many moments that arise, is the stuff of Buddhist practice, bodhicitta. It's interesting that the human mind is nothing but change, Nothing but change, and yet it seems so difficult to change. <laughs> when we gain insight into this mind, into this body, into what is true, and we gain and we have insight again and again and again, then we need to harmonize that, as Dogen said. Harmonize inner and outer, harmonize what we know to be true with how we embody that through those thoughts and our speech and our actions, through the karma that we're creating. That's much, much more difficult. We would like to just have an experience that kind of just washes everything clean. We start over, but we start over enlightened. No history, no baggage, no burden. Everyone loves us. We love everyone. (laughs) And what we find is that the insight can be deep and profound and revolutionary, And habits still arise. But now they're not the same. And so this is why Buddhism teaches so essentially, importantly, the two truths. That there's a fundamental truth in everything that has no abiding basis, has no inherent characteristic, does not exist by itself. There is nothing that is utterly independent. There is nothing that utterly exists. There is nothing that utterly stands alone. And when we look to find those qualities, those characteristics, that self, we can't find it. And that liberates us. And at every moment, at the very same time, in the very same place, something is appearing. We call it the relative truth. So that nothing is disregarded. Nothing is ignored. These two truths. And we bring those into the raising of bodhicitta, the aspiration to relieve ourselves, to free ourselves of suffering and the suffering of others. The absolute basis is, you have already arrived. You are already in your mind, in your body, that Buddha. You have the enlightened nature, enlightened mind, the Buddha mind. It is already present. You can't, in a sense, do anything about that. <laughs> you can't make it bigger. You can't make it smaller. You can't get rid of it. It can't be bought and sold. It's just the nature of things. And then there is practicing to realize that. There is bringing that, in a sense, into life, in life. Shantideva said, there is wishing to depart... And then there is setting out upon the road. They have to go together. It's easy to wish. And <clears throat> Trela Kyavgan's commentaries on the Atisha phrases that we're studying, he said, being a good person or having a good heart is, is not enough. It's good. But it's not enough. We need to distinguish between everyday acts of goodwill and transcendental states of consciousness that imbue our compassionate acts with wisdom and impartiality, selflessness. And so not enough means we'll encounter moments right, within our good intentions and our desire to be good people living good lives. We'll encounter moments in which we might retreat, in fear, or hesitation, or stinginess, or overwhelm, where the self is arising and we grasp. And so to realize that that self is an illusion helps to free us. And so we have meditative practices to cultivate this, to open the heart, to realize that wisdom, to turn the mind, to let go of our self-clinging. And then we and so we cultivate that in the, our meditation, and then we set out on the road every day and so in st- continuing to study Atisha's phrases, this is a body of teachings that comes from an Indian master, tenth century Atisha, a collection of short phrases that are practice points and so here to regard all dharmas as dreams. Uh, Judy Leaf, in her commentary, says, it's intriguing that this phrase comes right at the beginning because it sets a tone that is a little intimidating. We need to allow our reality to be a bit more shifty. Not shifty as in shiftless or unreliable, but as in not fixed. This challenges our desire to make our world solid, and reliable—reliable reliable in the sense of, of, of um, fulfilling our expectations. Solid objects, solid self, solid views, solid ideologies, solid opinions, solid relationships, solid everything. It's like living a life through dogma, where things are fixed and bound. And so to see the dreamlike quality of experience— now, dreams in Buddhism is used as a metaphor— for reality. There's a koan in which a student comes to Master Nanchuan and quotes a poem, says, Heaven, Earth, and I all have the same root, the same nature, the same essence. Myriad things and I are one body. The 10,000 things, everything in the universe and I have one fundamental nature. Isn't this marvelous? And Nanchuan points to a flower in the garden and says, People these days see this flower as a dream. The student seems to be dwelling in this sameness, in this emptiness, in this notion that I and all things are the same. Having one nature, free of boundaries and walls, free of any inherent characteristics. There is no conflict here. There is no separation. There are no... There's no me and you, us and them. We might want to stay in such a place. Hmm? Sounds pretty sweet. No conflict, troubles, entanglements. And so part of the challenge for the student of this koan is this student just holding an idea of emptiness or if they had a direct experience that they're attaching to. Either way, the attachment is to an idea. This is not what regard old Dharma's dreams is saying, is encouraging. The footnote to that Koan says, this student is making a living in a ghost cave. Living in a, a cave of ghosts, trying to make a living, trying to have a life. Master Dogen, in the fascicle that we're studying, says, he talks about language that divides. The Buddha recognized that language is extremely powerful. He said, there's, there's deceptive language that deceives. There's harsh language that is used like a weapon there's language that divides and separates, and there's language that just makes our minds sort of addled and numb. And we see all of those forms of language everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but abundant. So Dogen says, but within all of that sort of harmful language, there's also intimate language. The Buddha has intimate language, Intimate practice, intimate realization. But deluded people think that intimate means that which is known by the self, but not by anybody else, not by others. He goes on to say intimate language, an intimate heart, an intimate action. In Buddha, in Buddha Dharma is not like this. When you encounter a person, when you encounter a person, you invariably hear intimate language and speak intimate language. When you know yourself, you know intimate action. And intimate action means close and inseparable. So close that they can't be distinguished. There is no gap here. Intimacy embraces you. It embraces the self. It embraces your actions. It embraces generations. It embraces merit. It embraces intimacy itself. So when we think about all of the many forms of suffering of unhappiness, of dis-ease, of discontent of that we see within ourselves, we see within the world, all of these we could think of as just misguided uses of our mind. It's as simple as that, it's as profound as that. And to that degree, it's the results of an unexamined mind, a mind that is not known to the self, that is not known to the person who is using that mind, who is wielding that tremendous force, that tremendous power, and does not know, or has some sense of it, and is using it specifically for destructive purposes. What is it to encounter a person? When Nan Quan says, people these days see this flower is a dream, what is it to encounter a flower, a moment, yourself, your breath? What is it to truly meet? What is it to know yourself? We often think of knowing ourselves, knowing others, is to know our stories. I spoke recently about how we are storytellers. Our dreams are stories. Our stories are the stuff of dreams. And here, this intimacy is to know ourselves, to encounter each other, free of the story. In a sense, when we stop telling the story. A dream is such a wonderful metaphor because we all have dreams, right? Sleeping dreams, waking dreams. When we're, we bring things to mind, we have mental images, there's actions, there's dialogue, little movies that we create, right? that are informed and shaped by our views, by our desires, by our experiences, our history, our fears, our longings. And when we're inside of that dream, from within that dream, it all seems so real. Even if you're flying, or breathing underwater, or doing all the magical things we can do in dreams. It seems so real. And we can be reacting, panting, sweating, being aroused, being bored. <laughs> and then when we wake and it begins to slip away, we realize, oh, I was just dreaming. That was just my mind. And it slips away. You can't hold on to it. We can remember it, but we're no longer in that reality. We realize it can't, it's not a place we can live. We can't hold on to that. It doesn't exist in that way. When it's there, it has a kind of existence, but it doesn't exist in that way. And Buddhism says that's very much like what is going on right now. There's something that is going on, we shouldn't ignore it, we shouldn't disregard it, we shouldn't pretend that nothing is happening, thus study the nature of cause and effect, consequences, following actions. But at the same time, as Nagarjuna says, something is appearing, there is a dream, but what is the nature of that dream? If we proceed on the assumption that it just exists by itself, it has its own power, its own agency, that's really how we react a lot of times to what's happening. But how does it actually exist? Pema said, although you might think things are very solid, Pema children, they're like passing memories, like clouds. You can experience this open, unfixated quality in your meditation and see that everything that arises in your mind, hate and love and all the rest, is not solid. Even if it really hits you in a moment and you're really feeling that emotion or experiencing the weight of that memory or the strength of that thought, at some subsequent moment, it's going to drop away. That's a universal experience. Well, where did it go? Where did all that power go? Where did it come from? Although the experience can get extremely vivid, Pema says, it's just a product of the mind. And so when things are awful, when things are wonderful, they come and go. Even when something is persistent and seems constant, our awareness of it, our experience of it comes and goes. It doesn't stay fixed. When we push it away, it gets stronger. When we hold tight, it actually grows distant. What is that showing us? I talked about on Friday night, how. Buddhism is really a a tradition that is based in the verification, the evidence of what we see happening in the mind that we are examining, that we are actually awake to. And so, what is this mind that pushes away and that holds tight? As we begin to see all dharmas, all things that arise as dreams, as having an impermanent nature, an illusory nature, we try to grasp onto them and they slip through our fingers. And so the next phrase is, to examine the nature of our unborn awareness. When we examine the mind, we're examining awareness. So Judy says, well, what is awareness? How does it arise? What does it mean to perceive? What does it mean to have a perception? The question of consciousness is one that has puzzled scientists and philosophers as well as meditators and mystics. It seems to be intimately connected with the physical brain and yet not identical to it. And so when we use mind in Buddhism, we're not talking about the brain, but it doesn't exclude the brain. It doesn't exclude anything. It doesn't seem to be the brain that is perceiving, but rather it seems to be you. You. But what is, or who is, this you? And so we look at our own experience, the unborn awareness. If something is unborn, that means that it hasn't come into being. Right? It didn't come from somewhere. It wasn't the result of any action or any process. And not being born or being unborn and having none of those qualities, it can't die. It can't go away. And in the Buddha's um, search, in his practice up to his enlightenment based on his own teachings and and what he did, actually, as he was studying with other teachers, is it seemed very clear, and he makes this clear through his own teachings, that he understood before he had realized the nature of his unborn awareness that the only thing that would truly liberate us is, some, is, is to come into contact with that which was unborn, which was not the result of our action. Because he realized, if, if he was to realize a moment of bliss or peace or fulfillment or understanding that was based on the, the result of some action of his, then that thing that he had experienced would, would pass away. Because everything passes away that's been created. That's his nature. And so he realized he had to see if he could come into contact with some reality, some truth within himself that was not the result of his own creation. And that enlightenment that he had, enlightenment is that realization of the unborn mind, the self that has never been born, that doesn't exist as something that is a result of something. And so to examine the nature of unborn awareness. And so in our zazen, as we are particularly in the beginning, applying effort and trying to, you know, follow the teachings on what meditation is, as we're following the breath, for instance, you know, we're applying effort, we're doing something. But as time goes on, as that becomes stronger and more integrated, that sense of doing begins to drop away. That sense of trying to create or get to or preserve any state. But at the same time, it's not passive, it's not just letting things rip. So what is that middle path that's free of any effort or action or idea or process? How do we encounter what has no body, no form, no shape, no color, no age, no history? Because all of those things are a result of perception, our mind creating that awareness. So Pema Chodron said, look at your mind. Look at basic awareness itself. And to understand that examine doesn't mean to analyze. doesn't mean to figure something out. It means just looking and seeing. Is there anything to hold on to? Just look and see. Is there anything to hold on to? Churya, Tiantai master of China, who was very influential in, in the development of Chan, um, Said used to say, stop and see. Stop and see. To be just aware, to just sit, to just walk, to just bow, to just breathe, and that within this just is our clear awareness. And allowing the mind to be just is what we are actually bringing our effort to, because the habit is to be anything but that. (laughs) Right? It's to be busy in any way possible. And so when thoughts arise, emotions, sensations, to just let them rest in this boundless and unconstricted just. So all of the forms of practice are practicing this, coming closer to this. The great way has no difficulties, just Don't cling to your preferences. Don't attach to love and hate. Don't set up one opinion against another. Don't establish those walls and boundaries in the mind. And then right here, now, within that, know yourself. No intimate action. This is just close and inseparable. No gap. In that moment, this intimacy embraces you, embraces the self, embraces this action, the whole universe. And in this, at every step, as we're experiencing the development of our meditation, of our concentration, the opening of our hearts, cultivating compassion, being unafraid to care, being unafraid to be generous, being unafraid to face what is so difficult in our world, small worlds, large worlds, as we're developing all of that and feeling the strength of that, as we're gaining insight, because we have spent our whole lives attaching to things, we attach to those things. <laughs> right? Trumbur Bishay called it spiritual materialism. How we just do the same stuff to Dharma stuff. We turn it into stuff. And so we have these experiences, we feel these things that, we, that are positive, they are encouraging signs of a, of a developing practice. A life is being changed. That gap is closing. All good. But the moment that we hold on to it, something happens. Something else is happening. And so the next phrase is to self-liberate even the antidote. Judy says, the problem that this phrase addresses is the tendency to cling to the insight uncovered by the previous phrases. To see all Dharma's as dreams, to study and examine and realize the unborn awareness, and therein we get entangled again. She says, that is, you may have recognized the dreamlike nature of the world, the ungraspable nature of our will, awareness, but we still cling to that recognition itself and the sense of having figured all of this out. Look at me! (laughs) So the self keeps asserting itself. The need to find solid ground is so strong that we can make even the groundless nature of inner and outer experience into some kind of ground. This is quite common. It's almost inevitable. I would say it is virtually inevitable. Because as we are developing those insights, those habits are still strong. And it's really important just to appreciate that that's a universal experience. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with your practice. You know, I've said many times that when I got frustrated with myself over that, I I was still clinging to the idea that I can willfully work my way out of this. And I wasn't understanding or appreciating the depth and the power of the karma that I was experiencing and facing and that was still arising. I just didn't understand it. I thought I had a handle on it. That was what was frustrating me. That if I, would, that when I just allowed that, oh, you know, whatever my opinion of this is, it's still happening. Maybe that's what I need to give my attention to and let go of what I think should be happening, what I want to be happening. And when I did that, it was much more simple, much cleaner, much lighter, because then it was just, okay, just practice it. She says, the point of self-liberating the antidote is that you don't actually need to do anything to liberate it. You just need to realize that there are no antidotes When you do so, the antidote liberates itself. The self is itself self-liberating. Because from the very beginning, it is not entangled. There's a koan in The Transmission of Light where the student comes to the teacher and says, I am bound. Please release me from my bondage. And the teacher says, Who or what is binding you? And the student says, Nothing is binding you. The teacher says, then, why do you want me to liberate you? And yet, so that's in the realm of the relative, relative bodhicitta. That's what we need to practice. But the actual fact is, is we have Buddha nature. That all things abide in their own state. They themselves are not bound. The bondage comes in our mind. There is no conflict in the world outside of the conflict that we create in our mind. There is no division in the world outside of the division that we create in our mind. This is why the Buddha said we have to understand the nature of our mind. This is why when we don't examine the mind, all bets are off. Virtually anything can happen. Because we can turn anything and anyone into an object in a second we can have loved someone for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and the next day have forgotten that that ever, ever existed. How does that happen? Where is that happening? And so if we want to be free of the burden and pain of our attachments, and experience joy and ease, then we may have to free ourselves of our attachment to joy and ease. And we t- tend to think, that means, okay, no joy and ease. No, it means no attachment to, no, to joy and ease. Dada Roshi, for so many years, sat on this very seat and said, when you let go of everything, when you let go of all of your attachments to everything, what remains? And then he would answer, everything. Everything remains. There's just no attachment. There's no clinging. There's no bondage. There's no diminishing of that into an object in our mind, and we already know what happens when things become objects. They have no life. They lose their value, their worth, their dignity, any need for us to have respect. We lose our lives. We lose our dignity. We lose our own respect when we objectify something else. We lose that piece of our humanity. That's why objectification is the basis of all forms of suffering that we inflict on each other. It's the, it's the central credo of every form of oppression. Turn that which you fear into something that is not you. Something it doesn't have to be you, something that is not itself. And so how do we let go of everything, when of the, of the fruits of our practice, when they're the fruits of our practice? And there's a tendency to think, if I let go of this, then I'll lose it. If we hold on to it, we lose it. And so we basically have to go through that over and over and over. How many of you have had a meditation that you didn't want to leave behind? you probably had meditations that you were happy to leave behind. <laughs> but others in which, no, no, I don't want this to end, I don't want this to end, I don't want to go back home, I don't want to go back on the highway, I don't want to, I want to just live in this space. And you can't. And you shouldn't. Right? Because then we're objectifying something that actually has life. A student asked, asked Master Zhao Zhou, how is it when nothing arises? How is it when I'm free of all things, nothing arises? And Xiao Zhou says, cast it away. And the student says, when nothing arises, how can I cast it away? Xiao Zhou says, very well, then carry it with you. (laughs) If you must, carry it with you and see. Examine that. And that's really important. You know, I remember years ago, Many years ago, we had a student who had a long history of drug, drug addiction. And he told me once he had a butsudan. A butsadon is the sort of the, the frame, the little um, case in which the Buddha sits. And he had a, a Buddha in his home, and he had a butsadan that the Buddha sat in. And he said when he would use, when he would be getting ready to use drugs, he would close the doors of the butsadan. And there was something about that that was so just got to me that even in the midst of that mind state in which he was going to try and disappear from himself, he didn't want the Buddha to see it, that there was something in him that knew, right? there's there's this vision that he somehow wanted to keep intact. And I said, the Buddha still sees. The Buddha is not on the inside of that door. You're very closing those doors of the Buddhasana is your scene, is the Buddha's seeing, what you don't want the Buddha to see. You've already seen it. Even medicine that will save a life can harm us if we don't use it skillfully. The Buddha said, the Dharma is like a snake. You have to know which end to pick it up from. Anything that has great power is like that. Anything that has tremendous power can be used to heal, to give life, or to take it away. But that's that's okay in terms of dharma practice. That's why we train. That's why we practice. That's why we study. That's why we have teachers. That's why we practice within sanghas. And so we can keep learning how do we practice this dharma? How do we hold this great power, which is really ourselves? When we encounter that flower, We know the flower. When you encounter yourself, you know intimacy. And that knowing is beyond the story, beyond the idea, beyond the narrative. And so on this path of liberation, it's a dedication to to liberating everything, including liberation itself. It's described as a golden cage. It's gold. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. You built it, and now you're trapped in it. But the cage is another just dream. And so I'll end with a poem. And I hope that, particularly those of you who have come and given something of yourselves to all of us this weekend, thank you for that, that this has helped you in some way, help giving you some energy or some sense of your own direction, wherever that might go. The world needs people who want to know, who want to understand, who are unafraid to care. So please continue. Whatever it is that got you here, keep giving, feeding that mouth. <laughs> dreaming of heavens, dreaming of hells, Dreaming within a dream. If dreaming, dream yourself an enlightened being. Dream your life an enlightened life. Dream the rain of compassion that falls everywhere the same. Just be sure to dream with your eyes wide awake. Now, wide awake, I beg you to live this. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.